Good morning. My name is Judith Sachs. I'm the Chief Academic Officer for Studiosity. I want to acknowledge that I am hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I am located in the suburb of, of Balmain uh, in the city of Sydney. I also pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia. I welcome our UK colleagues and those from other countries. It's good to have you participate. Today is our second symposium for 2023. The week before last, we had one hosted again by me and we had participants from New Zealand, Canada, the US and other European countries. We had 1,634 people registered and about 1,200 participated. Today, we have, um, we have over 238 registered and the numbers are going up now. So just let me uh, make a couple of observations. And then I'm going to ask the panel members to introduce themselves and to indicate why we've asked them to be the spokespeople in today's symposia, your area of expertise. So a couple of observations. Every day there's some mention of AI in general and chat GPT um, in the media and media feeds and social media sites. The first response four weeks ago was that of moral panic. The end of universities, we know them, was imminent, according to the moral panic. Uh, some of the reactive heat has now subsided, and now there's more informed and reflective debate on what this new technology means. There have been a number of webinars, and there are an increasing number of uh, interesting discussions on, on various websites. Uh, discussions of the chat GPT are around technology direct around technology dimensions of those of learning and teaching and assessment. Our focus today is on learning and teaching and to consider what new opportunities may emerge and what we need to do to be watchful and responsive. So the seminar today is introduction, five minutes. That's nearly gone. I'll then ask each of the members of the panel questions that relate to their expertise and experience, and then questions will be taken from the audience. So please, if you have questions, uh, put it in the chat and I will try to synthesize them and, uh, and get the discussion going. But let's um, the panel introduce themselves. And Irene, may I ask you to start, please? Thank you very much. And thank you very much for inviting me to be part of the panel this morning. Um, I work at Coventry University in the UK and my role is academic integrity lead for the, the whole of the Coventry University group. And uh, so I, I coordinate all the policies. My expertise is in policies, and I've been doing uh, quite a bit of research into how we should um, design both policies and guidance relating to the use of artificial intelligence tools by students. I'll say something more about that later on in the, uh, in, in the, in the panel. Thanks very much. Alison. Good morning, everybody. So I'm joining you from the University of Exeter. Um, I'm an associate professor in the business school there and director of the Centre for Innovation in Business Education. And as such, I oversee lots of work that we're doing at the moment around reviewing our assessments, um, not least in reaction to the arrival of these AI tools that we're going to be talking about today. Um, and for me, my interest in this area is very much about seeing these tools as an opportunity um, Yes, they are threats. I think we're, we're seeing in the news headlines even today, 
there's a headline um, around um, misconduct um, the OIA putting out a report around um, the ways that we need to be looking at misconduct um, afresh because of these the emergence of these tools. And then yesterday, a headline um, around the IB, um, the International Baccalaureate, um, allowing the use of chat GPT. For me, that's the wrong question. Um, so I'm really interested to interrogate some of these responses. Um, so thank you very much for inviting me and look forward to discussing some of these issues further. Helen. Thank you. Um, I'm Helen Neville, and I'm the Provost at Kingston University. Um, in London. Um, and I think that my interest in this topic or the reason I've been invited is that um, it's very possible to have some very, very interesting pedagogic discussions and design fantastic, great practice that's really innovative and supports students. And then at some point you have to translate that into a framework of, of being able to um, put it into action, um, um, monitor it, uh, if I can use that word, um, and make sure it works for everybody across an institution which covers a slew of different disciplines, approaches, different kinds of assessments, uh, student support versus academic workload and time and ability to manage that. So I think I'm, I'm really interested in that um, pedagogic and intellectual discussion around it, but then at some point there will have to be a discussion about how do you then implement this um, across a, a university uh, infrastructure, bureaucracy, administration. Um, and that's the sort of devil in the detail bit uh, that often trips us up, even when we have the best intentions. So I think that's kind of like a, my interest as well. Thank you very much. My training was in anthropology and in ethnography in particular. And uh, there are three questions that ethnographers ask. What's happening here? What's really happening and what does it mean? So in the context of this conversation today, the first one, what's happening at the moment for this to be a, an issue in universities? And I don't mind who wants to start that off. Helen. I knew you were going to call on me. I was just looking for my mute because I thought she's going to, having said that, I'm looking for that sense of how we uh, implemented. I think we have, we've sort of known that this was coming and there have been um, discussions and interesting things start to talk, but it's been a bit speculative. And it's only recently that we've all been allowed to have a play with this and get onto chat GPT. And I know there are others out there as well, but it's really something that feels like it did catch us a little bit unawares and we are playing a little bit of catch up. Um, so I think at university level, uh, like other universities, we're reviewing what we say. Um, there is, a, um, I like your phrase, moral panic, because I think there is a moral panic um, in the press and in the po poli uh, policy that's often based on the people who write these things think that universities have not moved on since they were at university. So they have a very strong picture that everything is a written assessment that can be written by artificial intestine, and that's how universities work. And so this will be devastating. And in fact, when you look at it, you know, the strides universities have made in the last 20 years to more authentic assessments and different varieties of assessments is tremendous. So there is already a lot of assessment that will not be touched by this. Um, but in terms of what universities are doing, we're looking at our policies, uh, we're looking at our guidance, we're looking at student support around assessment, things that we have been looking at anyway, and then was uh, accelerated through coronavirus uh, and the changes we had to make there. Uh, so we're looking at the policy, uh, but that can be quite dry um, and hard to interpret. And, you know, how many of your students really read some of these policies? Uh, they're not really written in student friendly language often. And even if they read them, you know, they're quite difficult to interpret. So we're looking at what sort of student support we put in, because I think with um, with with um, these things like ChatGPT and the others, more than anything, we need to be able to work examples into our teaching practice so that students can really see what we're talking about. Um, so there's a connection between discussions we have of policy, practice, good ideas, guidelines, and actually making sure they don't just um, get, get uploaded somewhere, but they are part of um, how we support students and prepare them for assessment. 
and that they're living documents. So policy doesn't get ossified. So Sarah Bird has made a comment suggesting that um, some policymakers had developed policy based on their experiences 20 to 30 years ago. Yeah, like that absolutely. sense of renewal must happen all the time. Yeah, and that sense of, I mean, again, some of our policies around extensions and mitigating circumstances and so on often are based on the idea of um, small assessment, uh, sorry, end assessments at the end of a big piece of work that you can manage and they haven't actually picked up, they haven't kept pace with some of the continual assessment that we do, the small early stakes assessment, the way we sometimes use assessment as a proxy for engagement. I don't think our policies have really kept up with that. So it is part mm. of a bigger discussion about how we manage assessment and what we assess for, you know, is it assessment of learning or assessment for learning? Um, you know, how do we embed it a little bit more? Um, so I think it's, it's, it's part of that bigger review. Alison, let me shine the torch on you. Thank you. Yeah, so I think part of this is about redefining constantly what we mean by cheating. Um, I think our perception of, of cheating may be different from every student um, perception of cheating. I think when we've got students coming in from different countries around the world who have previously studied um, either pre-18 or, or indeed coming to us at master's level, having studied at undergraduate level, policies differ and, and perceptions of what constitutes cheating differ hugely around the world. Um, I think the emergence of some of these tools that are causing such panic um, really is refining our idea of that because in the past you know we've accepted that students use google we might encourage them to use google scholar or go via our university um, library searches and databases instead but essentially you know how different is it asking chat gpt for a summary of a topic to turning to a friend or turning to a parent or turning to one of their peers so we've got to really be clear with students what we mean by cheating by what we mean by misconduct and that ties in with how we create that policy but also how we communicate um, that policy um, but it's also about adapting our our intended learning outcomes i mean we all call them something slightly different i think but in the end what is a degree program what is a module it's about teaching something these days very um, much more on the skills and the competencies that students are developing, not just that knowledge. Um, you know, as students will frequently say to us, we have Google, why do we need to remember things? Why do we need to be tested on our knowledge? And of course, they, they do need that as a basis on which to then extend their learning. Um, but we are assessing different things now, I think, than we were assessing perhaps 20 or 30 years ago. And there's a much more of a focus on employability as well. So we're thinking, particularly in business schools, around building those authentic assessments, really building up those competencies. And I think the emergence of these AI tools really are making us think much more carefully about how we develop those digital competencies. And that isn't just in students either, that's in staff as well, and how we support them to build up an understanding of how to use these tools effectively um, and assess students appropriately. Irene. Yes, I'm gonna broaden it slightly. Ask um, going back to about last March, I set up a working group in my institution to look into, primarily, we were looking at paraphrasing tools. We were looking at paraphrasing tools, we were looking at grammar checkers, translation tools, um, and also we were looking at essay bots. That's where we started. So we've been exploring that for the, almost a year now, and uh, these tools are not new. They've been with us a very long time. We use them from day to day. We all use them. And they're going to be embedded within software that we use all day, uh, every day, uh, very soon. 
and some of these have been embedded within these tools for a very long time. We've got used to using them, they're fine. But the advent of these uh, content um, generators, it's not just text, <coughs> other things as well, um, has, has changed um, the, um, the need to respond. So what, what I've been doing is to look at with, with my team, with, with, uh, with my colleagues, we've been, first of all, uh, expanding our own knowledge on these, but also talking to colleagues. And that, that's really an important part of, 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 the, um, of the process so that we can then understand all, all the different perspectives on when it's good to use these tools, when it's useful to use these tools, and when it's not appropriate to use these tools. So I think that's really what we need to focus on. We can't ban them. And I think everyone agrees with that now. It would be impossible to ban them even if we wanted to. Um, but we need to think uh, in a nuanced way about what would be appropriate uses of these tools um, and, 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 when, and when not. And then communicate that both to staff and to students, make sure people understand that and they, um, and, and they follow the, the rules once we've decided what they are. But that we're flexible in terms of, um, uh, of what, what, what needs to happen because these tools are still evolving. Um, and and uh, they're not going to go away. They're going to be there forever now. So we need to think about uh, and take advantage of, of, of what, they, what they're good at, um, but make sure that we control the use where we can um, and, make, and make all the rules very clear to everyone. So that, that's really what I've been working on. So I'm getting the sense that the common thread here is that, in fact, it's about clar real clarity of expectations. It's around reframing assessment and it's making assessment purposeful, but it's also about accepting that this technology will continue to develop. Have I have I got it right, or am I sort of? You have. I think that's. I think you you, you summed that up quite well, um, because um, the, the the other aspects of my the other two panelists talked about um, designing designing pedagogy, designing um, um, assessments. And I think we are already halfway there. A lot of the a lot of the assessment redesign and the and the kind of the, um, the dialogue around assessment to, to cope with contract cheating is very much um, uh, in line with what we need to do for these tools. So we, we need to keep moving in the same direction. And I think I think the pandemic helped us a lot because it made us rethink what, what assessment is for and what it needs to look like. And, um, and all of all of that um, work that we've done for that is, is is contributing directly to what we need to continue to do in regarding the AI tools. So I don't think we need to panic. We need to just take a measured approach and keep keep moving in the same direction. Helen. Yeah, sorry, I've been looking at the, the chat um, <laughs> and the conversation there. And I think, you know, again, there is that, I don't think anyone, we've all, no one has so far has thought we should just ban it. Uh, we all recognise that's, that's just, first of all, um, uh, an arms race we will lose. Uh, we'll constantly have to keep upping our investment in protection. It just won't work. Um, and secondly, it doesn't reflect the reality of the, of the world and of employment where people will be using these. So I think it is much more about a thoughtful response to it and thinking about what students get out of it. It's really interesting that I think that the, um, some of the coverage is focused on the idea of its artificial writing. Um, and when actually when you look at it, the writing style is, is quite bland. It's quite um, unimaginative. Um, I, I think the writing itself is that it's very clever for, a, for AI, obviously. But I think the, the bit that is interesting to me sometimes is how students struggle with uh, structure, um, how they get going with things. Uh, so I think somebody has put a, a, an interesting comment 
in the um, in the chat about sometimes this is a sort of starting point. It's a framework for students. It lets them take something that helps them think about their structure, which is something I think students struggle with more than writing often. And, and then they take it from there. So what we're really talking about is the starting point is different in the same way that Wikipedia, Google moved the starting point from go into the library with a blank piece of paper. This is moving the starting point for that piece of work further, um, further along. And I think what we need to do in assessments is to be able to enable students to be honest about that and to tell us, you know, what was your starting point and where did you change from that? Um, so, um, so that they can reflect on that piece that I started here. I started with a structure and some general generic ideas and I read it and this is the bit I really didn't think was right or this is the bit that I wanted to investigate more. Um, so I think allowing students to have that discussion as part of the assessment in a way that art school pedagogy has always done. Art school pedagogy has always been, it's about the process um, and it's about your ability to reflect on the process. So I think that's the bit we need to start thinking about. It's not, um, assessment's not about the product at the end of it necessarily. It's about that discussion, that debate, that ability um, to reflect on how you got to where you got. Um, where did you start from? And then what did you do to, to move things, to, to add the human intelligence to the artificial intelligence? Awesome. Yeah. I think we can see this hand in hand as well with one of the other challenges that we're all facing in higher education at the moment, and that's around student attendance and engagement. Um, so I think actually this is this whole debate is helping us with that because it's forcing us as educators to develop the way that not only we assess, but how we teach and how we embed that assessment and link that assessment with everything that we do in the classroom. Um, I have an example of, uh, I don't know if now's the appropriate moment, um, Judith, to just tell you a little bit about an example of a module that I designed um, with some colleagues at Exeter a couple of years ago, um, when we, we were really trying to think through not only the, the module is called Digital Technologies in the Future of Work, so it's very much about how we integrate and, and enhance our use of digital tools and how that they will impact us um, all as we move into different jobs throughout our lives. Um, and we wanted to really address this issue of attendance and engagement. So we built an assessment where it was portfolio based and students were only able to do well in that assessment if they had actively engaged throughout that whole module. So we had online forums, discussion forums, which we know students were not using very much at all in many other modules, but we directly linked it to the assessment. So students were required every week to contribute to those discussion forums. Um, they had to then have a portfolio of evidence um, that they would submit as part of that end assessment to prove that they had engaged in discussion with their peers. These are things that actually we, we should always be having students do. We, we would hope that students are doing throughout any of their courses. But by linking it to the assessment, we were kind of forcing the issue, making it difficult for them to avoid that. It helped with the attendance at class, even if they weren't actually physically attending classes. And some of these were online classes, no doubt, um, obviously because of through the pandemic. Um, but it meant that students had to engage and it meant that the assessment was much more personalized. And I think that's the other way that we get around use of these tools is the assessments need to be personalized, tailored, unique to the individual student and help us to see that process of learning. Um, so it's difficult sometimes to navigate that with students who are not used to this way of teaching, but I think it's a really useful way of thinking about the challenges that we face when there are these tools available for students um, in, in creating their assessments. Do either of you, the other speakers, want to respond to Alison's point? And I think it's 
there's something that comes up for me, but I'll wait for the others to make a comment or an I was just going to suggest that I absolutely agree with that kind of continuous using assessment as an continuous breadcrumbing is really ideal. All I was saying about the, how we then translate that into policy, where we have done that, we have ended up with a massive backlog of mitigating circuit. The students get very, very obsessed about every single piece of that assessment counting. Um, and everything counts. So we had we were overwhelmed with the um, mitigating circumstances claim for things that when you added it up was less than one percent of their overall degree. Um, and we were forcing them to fill in forms and get doctor's notes and things like that. So there is a sort of policy translation. That's the bit I'm kind of interested in is how you take something that is pedagogically works and then translate it into policies, because I think the idea, um, um, as we've said, is, is absolutely that's the right kind of assessment. But um, I do think there's something about helping students understand assessment so that it's not such the high stakes, stressful, um, continuously stressful um, experience, that they're able to see that there is some space in there to, to fail at something or to not do so well at something and to see it all as a big piece. Because I do think there is a sort of, it's all that connectedness that then connects with student mental well-being um, and that constant feeling of being under pressure. So I, I agree it's the right approach, but we need to think through how we embed it through our policies, student support, and their understanding of what's being asked of them. I, I agree with all that's been said, but there are other ways of assessing as well that, they, that are that are useful and helpful. And, and having a having the student, um, having the presence of the student where possible, either online or in, or in person, is, is is another way to make sure that uh, knowing your students all of that is is an important part. Asking them to do something active rather than something. Uh, just go away and create me an essay on this topic that's already out there. Um, so there are, uh, it's very important that every every person setting the piece of assessment understand um, what, um, how easy it is for a student to, to gain access to that information, for example, making, making sure it's applied. We know at the moment that these tools can't write critique, they're not very good at writing critical appraisals, uh, they're very much fact-based. Um, making sure that it's uh, personalised to either the context of the of the institution, context of the, of the student. Uh, those are the things that um, artificial intelligences can't uh, do very well. Uh, they have to understand the context there. Also, we we need to understand that um, that essay mills will also be using these tools. So, and they in fact. Indeed, they are already um, because it's cheaper to employ an artificial intelligence than, um, than to employ a person to do a, be a ghostwriter. So you need to understand the kind of the full uh, the full range of different uh, approaches. But I mean, we one of the ways we've been kind of focused so far on this is assuming that because these tools are out there and because these opportunities are out there, students will all cheat. And, and I think we have to be realistic and understand that the majority of students are honest and they're, they're there to learn. They pay a lot of money to us to, to be taught and to, you know, to engage in the learning process. And the honest students, if, as long as we give them good guidance, good support, good help, the majority of students will um, are there to learn and will engage with their learning. Um, and it's the students who, uh, who are um, minded to cheat, um, that will continue to cheat. And, and it, it's my hope and it's my expectation that we won't have a massive rise in the number of students who are breaching uh, integrity um, as a result of these tools. Uh, the, the students who are minded that way 
we'll we'll just require the, the, the tool that are available. Um, so, but we need to get the message out to the students that, um, that if they are if they're minded to breach um, integrity, um, we 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 can and we will uh, be able to detect it. And that's a that's a whole new topic that we haven't talked about yet. Anand Schlosser has put uh, together an interesting point about critical thinking to me is crucial in all of this. We need students in undergraduate and at A-level to be able to demonstrate critical thinking and communicate this effectively. The secondary school curriculum is very much geared to rote learning rather than critical thinking. So how do we encourage and nurture original critical thinking and engagement in students? Can I just start by saying I completely agree with that point and, and in some ways the threat to education is more about the secondary level uh, than it is about universities because I think we're already on top of this, this subject whereas a lot of schools haven't even started to think about these problems so I think we do need to engage with our if you like our feeder schools with, the sec with secondary education within, within um, our countries uh, within our, our regions um, and, and help them to come to terms with this. Because if the students are, are using these tools to replace uh, their own writing at a younger age, they're going to be devoid of these writing skills that we need them to develop. So it's really important. It's a bit like going back, um, what, 30, 40 years when calculators came in. Um, you know, that didn't take away the need for students to be able to do sums, you know, be able to do arithmetic. Uh, because if you can't do mental arithmetic, you can't function in your in your general life. It's important that students have this. In the same way, they must learn to write at a younger age and not rely on the tools too much. Um, that's my view. Um, okay. Learn to write once you've learned to be able to write and read and understand what the quality of the outputs are from these tools, then you can use them in a, in an ethical and intelligent way. Helen? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's, I mean, we all know the answers to these. There are lots and lots of imaginative, creative, interesting answers that people will come up with um, across the university sector. Uh, and again, I'm sorry to keep coming back to the administrative and the policy part of it. Part of it is just workload, uh, people having the time to do these things, um, moving away from things that, you know, the reason schools do this, um, again, I think we're stuck on the idea that people who look back and say, well, I passed A-levels, therefore they must be the best measure of brilliance. Um, uh, but I think um, often it's just about workload, timetable, ability to manage it. Um, so I think there is a bigger question there as well about that probably addresses the fact that we are consistently over-assessing. And a colleague of mine at the University of Leeds did a, a marvellous piece on this, showing how much time we were spending assessing students, marking students, administering the marks, and questioning whether that was really a good use of everybody's time. And, and someone in the chat, puts, um, chat comment has mentioned, you know, do we want to move away from that sort of very modular, very every single learning outcome assessed in a specific way? Could we reduce um, assessment so that we can be more creative, uh, more clever, um, and more in-depth about, as you say, Judith, that critical thinking piece uh, which involves a lot more time, I think. Uh, and as somebody again has put in the chat, you know, we can use ChatGPT. It's not a one-way street. Uh, we can find academics able to use it to give feedback. There are other things we can do with it. Uh, but we want to have it. We want to have a better discussion around critical thinking. And to do that, I think we need more time to do to devote to that. And in order to do that, I think we need a better idea of, you know, let's have less assessment, but at a higher quality 
um, and that we're really having more engagement uh, and more discussions about that because the realistic aspect of it is people are very tired, very overworked, um, and the volume um, of assessment is overwhelming. And of course, I've done it myself. We default to, I will just do what I did last year uh, because it, it's, it's okay, it's fine. I got by with that. Um, and I think we have to have a bigger discussion about how we manage uh, assessment in a way that is manageable for people. And then you get to this kind of quality assessment and quality feedback um, that students uh, want and deserve. Alison, there's a really interesting thing from Sarah Bird. So after you've spoken, I'm going to pick up Sarah's point. I was just going to come in on the critical thinking um, aspect of this, because I think actually we can harness these tools like ChatGPT to really support us with that, to really get students to interrogate the things that they are reading and scrutinise them and actually use the outputs of ChatGPT within the classroom, um, you know, generate various different um, responses to particular prompts. I think the prompt writing is, is an interesting issue in itself. Um, I think actually part of our job as educators, if students are gonna be using these tools throughout their education and their working lives, is to teach them how to write good prompts. Um, I think we've all played around with these tools and realized that the first question we put in does not produce a very good answer. Um, so maybe we could have this as an active um, activity within the classroom and actually get those bit, bits of text generated and then talk to students about why they may not be good we know what is the material that the these chat bots are drawing on um how high quality is that um so when the in the piece about ib um a student's being allowed to use chat gpt and, and quoting it as if it's any other source ignores the fact that actually chat gpt is not acknowledging the sources that it is using so i know there's something else called perplexity isn't it there's another ai tool out there that we can um, access at the moment which does pro provide citations which at least goes a little bit of a step further there. But I think we've really got to get students thinking about everything they're encountering. And it isn't just text here, it's images, it's films, it's anything else that they might be encountering as part of their studies. Asking the right questions, you know, those classic who, what, why, where, how questions, who produced it, why did they produce it, who is that, what is the intended audience, where is their potential bias? That's how we develop their critical thinking skills. So I really think there is an opportunity here in using these tools to get students to really be thinking seriously about how they're accessing information and, and the quality of that information and whether it's reliable or not. Can I just redirect our, our conversation a little bit? Sarah Bird makes the, the, the comment, I think we're failing to address cultural issues. Recent expansion international student recruitment has real, revealed deep differences in students' prior experiences and understanding of assessment offences, willingness to accept assessment offences, and even with the clearest evidence, shock that we really will see through the policy, especially on serial or serious offences, and strong financial and familial pressures to succeed. This is not true of all nationalities, but there are some patterns that we tend not to touch on for fear of discrimination. Yet those populations are making decisions from a very different basis, though I suspect we are hugely under-diagnosing under UK students' use of mills, etc as the language differences are not so stark. So what's, what's the point? I mean, the, the issue is we're, we're seeing the student body as sort of homogeneous, but it's not. It's very diverse, it's very varied. International students pay a huge cost financially, but also in terms of their social relationships. So I guess the question is, how do we manage the differing expectations of students and how do we support students to be successful rather than fall into a, a trap of misunderstanding of 
the norms and requirements of a UK university. Can I come in at that point? Um, I think this is a really, really important question. And I don't think we do enough uh, um, to, um, to introduce um, our international students to life in the UK. We, we, you know, we are doing our best, uh, or we think we are. I think there's more, more that we can do. Um, I think there's far too much assumptions, particularly when a student comes in at master's level, that the students already have all the skills and, and, and that they share the same kind of values and motivations that we do. And I think we need more to, um, we need to do more to um, bring students into our community and make them welcome. We, we had a, an, an example came up recently where one of my colleagues was talking to a student who had been um, um, facing allegations of academic misconduct. And the student hadn't been using any of the services within the institution at all um, because he didn't think it applied to him. Um, and how we kind of try and break down those barriers to make sure uh, the students are not just aware of what services are out there, but also that they do apply to them and they are, um, are very useful. So in my institution, we recently introduced uh, what, what we call success coaches, where the students can go to um, a, a mentor um, and, and talk to that mentor about their problems. And uh, very quickly, the mentors contacted me and said, oh, Irene, we need to know more about the academic integrity policies because that's the kind of questions we get in. So it's kind of finding the, the ways to join up all the different parts of the university and parts of the services that we provide and make sure that people can signpost correctly and advise students on, on the different things that they would need to know while, while they're students here. And I think there's a lot of, of pre-assumptions that it's not my job to teach students about writing, it's not my job to teach them about paraphrasing and all of those things. There are a lot of skills that students need to acquire when they when they arrive here. And that applies to UK students as well as international students. But I don't think we're putting enough effort into that kind of education piece um, and doing it as a joined up process. Um, and I think that's that's really important that it's seen as, as, as part of the curriculum and that it's orchestrated perhaps by the course director. But the course director says, right, we have a, a, a a period of time here where the students need to learn about writing, need to develop those skills, but also continue to develop those skills throughout the student journey. It's not something they learn when they just, just once when they arrive, it's something they need to continue to develop. As is critical thinking, critical writing. A lot of the students that arrive have only ever done exams as, as, as their assessments before they arrive. They haven't really had to do academic writing in the way that we expect them to do. Irene, can I interrupt and give the other two a chance yeah, to no. respond to some of the things that you've you've been of saying? And I think what you've been saying is absolutely on 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 the on the spot. But I've got to be fair. I, I think that uh, I would completely agree with that. And I think one of the, I can't remember the exact title for this session, uh, but I think I like the fact that it was called something like a student-centered perspective. Um, so, you know, can we stop thinking about these issues from the point of view of, oh, no, how do we manage this as a university? How do I manage this as a teacher? To, to what does this change about the students' way of approaching assessments? And I think that point about international students, but also some of our first-in-family, first-generation students go to university, about how they see assessment is really, really critical to this discussion. Because if you're an academic, you see assessment every single year. For many years now, you've been 
taking them in, marking them, giving feedback over and over again, it becomes a commonplace thing to you. Um, and I think that we then forget, of course, sometimes that from the student perspective, they're at university for three years, one year for their master's, whatever it might be. This is absolutely critical and crucial to them. And their stress point, the emotional, um, social, intellectual capital that is invested in that piece of work is, is enormous, is enormous. Um, and so when we understand it from that point of view, and I know many people on these calls will have been in um, uh, misconduct committees or appeals or anything like that. Um, and, and this idea that you can sort of talk about cheating as just this basic dishonesty, I knew it was wrong and I did it. So few cases are actually about that. When you actually start to unpick them, it's students who are under tremendous pressure. Do not, as you've said, um, uh, don't understand where to go for help. Um, don't necessarily always understand what cheating means. You know, they may think it's a form of compliments to be repeating certain academics' words back to them, but slightly different. Um, so it's about all of those things. And again, I think that student-centeredness of, okay, how, what are we doing assessment for? Is it to satisfy professional bodies? Um, is it to give people a score that employers will understand? Or is it to help students feel that they have learned something and for them to be able to articulate what they have learned? Um, you know, what's their learning game? Is their assessment geared towards them understanding the value of what they've done? Um, but I think understanding the pressure that students are under uh, and why they take the routes they do is going to be really important. I mean, it's interesting, as I said about GPT being a starting point, you can see giving all students a answer to something and asking them all to critique it or to talk about the bit that they're interested in sets as a nice common starting point instead of them feeling they have to hide the starting points or not acknowledge that they are at different starting points. So I can see how it could be a really useful tool in that way. Alison. Yeah, I completely agree, Helen, with your point around most students actually not intentionally cheating. Um, most of it is panic, running out of time, having troubles with the language. Most students feel a real sense of injustice around if, if students around them are cheating. They, they, they want to, us to really crack down because they think it's unfair on them, themselves when they have put the work in. So most students, I think, are ethical. Most students, um, I think, you know, want to do the right thing. And it is incumbent on us. You're right. Absolutely, Irene. We need to put so much more effort. And I think we are doing a lot better around induction. Um, Exeter, we've built pre-arrival courses that students are, are asked to go through before they even arrive on campus um, to try and kind of familiarise them with the ways that we will be um, teaching them, the ways that they'll be expected to study. We've designed a, um, a framework called Principles of Professional Practice, which, you know, includes being ethical. It means it includes being collaborative, respectful, um, responsible, compassionate with others, engaged in your classroom. I think these are the kinds of things that we're going to need to put a lot more emphasis on and I think it's a particularly a, a challenge for those of us with very large cohorts for all the reasons that we've already touched on here um, that we have to have that peer-to-peer -peer support in place as well so um, one of you mentioned earlier about having additional people on campus who are dedicated to the student experience mentors that will hold students hands if they feel that they need a little bit of help we brought in some recent graduates for us because we were finding that students weren't necessarily going to their educators they weren't going to the the full-time members of staff because it, it felt too intimidating for them so we've got recent graduates who are now working with us because they just seem much more accessible they sit you know they have regular drop-ins it's very easy for students to go to them and access that support so i think it's it's about trying to see the, the good in students it's, it's not always seeing them as, as being out to cheat the system some of them inevitably will be but I think we've got to see the good there. And one final point about international students, of course, is that we know many of them use translation tools. 
So what are we assessing here? Are we assessing their ideas or are we assessing their writing? And we've got to think about what those intended learning outcomes are, again, for each course that we're offering. Because if we're not directly assessing their ability to write, should it matter to us, perhaps, if they've written a piece of work in their own language, translated it, maybe run it through ChatGPT to, to polish that, that writing? If the core of it that we're assessing is still their ideas, should it matter that they've had help? Because is that, again, to reflect on my point earlier, is that any different from getting a, a friend or, or a parent to, to read their work and, and to maybe do some proofreading? You know, it's, it's a sliding scale, isn't it, as to what, again, what we find acceptable and what we don't. There's a comment here from um, Nicola Pallet. Second and third language English students are more likely to use AI tools for cognitive offloading. How do we address this without stigma? And Irene, I'm going to throw that one at you. In terms of second and third year students? I no, think second and third language. Oh, second and third language. Yes, absolutely. And, and the, the difficulty here is how we, how we decide what this kind of gray area is. Um, what, what, if we're going to allow the students to use these tools, which I strongly advocate we do, then we need to set some boundaries for what is acceptable practice and what isn't. And that's going to be the difficult part is to, is to define what that gray area is and define where, if there is a red line, where that lies. Um, I think these tools are very valuable. They, they will be very useful. I've had, as part of my working group, we've, we've had a member of our um, um, English for Academic Purposes, uh, 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 part of our team, and that's been really, really instructive because he's been helping us to uh, understand how how they see the, these tools as being valuable to students and we wouldn't want to stop students using uh, grammar checkers because it helps to increase in, uh, the value of, the, of their work. What we wouldn't want students to do is to use these tools uh, to deceive, to use these tools for uh, cheating purposes. So it's, it's getting the message over to the students about uh, what is ethical use of the tools and what isn't. And that's the hard bit. We, we haven't defined, you know, that fine detail of the policy yet. But what we are saying we, we would like to do, uh, I think this is coming out of uh, quite a few of the uh, kind of policy developments I've seen, is that we'd like to um, ask students to acknowledge when they've used these tools and perhaps keep drafts of the work that they've done um, so that they can demonstrate if they're challenged about it, they can demonstrate which bits of it were their own work, if you like, and and where they um, uh, where they got help from the tools, but also not use the tools to deceive, such as you know, for example, with with, with translation tools, not take a, a plagiarized essay in another language and then translate it into English and hand that in. Those are the kind of no-go areas. And, but we need to define these. We need to define for students why that's wrong. You know, um, um, and I, if I can. Pick up on, on, on something that Alison said about, um, you know, it's okay to use translation tools. I completely agree. Translation tools can be very useful for both reading and writing. We wouldn't want to ban them. I use them all the time. Um, but what we wouldn't want students to do is to use them in a way that they are um, taking a piece of work and using the translation tools so that it, it reduces the similarity percentage, for example, uh, to describe plagiarism and so on. So it's that kind of message we need to get over to students and that really needs to go into the policies. Um, but what we, the way that we do that is we ask students to um, 
declare when they use the tools um, and how they use them. And in that way, you've got some kind of control over um, yeah, and honesty over the use of the tools. It, it seems to me that um, well, there's, there's a whole lot of consensus about things. And, and one of them is it's about learning and it's about support. And it's not just students learning, it's about academics being provided with the skills to be able to use it. So can we just investigate that whole assessment, for want of a better word, let me call it the assessment ecosystem, to, to, to help some of our academic colleagues who've been doing the same pieces of assessment for the last 15 years and are really resistant to changing it because they are, in, they are absolutely convinced that these questions demonstrate something. I don't know what they demonstrate, but they clearly demonstrate something. So how do we create that learning ecosystem for everyone? And so everybody has skin in the game around assessment, but also around issues of integrity, where to attribute and, th and you know, the, whole, the whole quality of the learning experience. I think there's often data that you can use to back this up and that's been really useful uh, in talking to colleagues um, who you know the unintended consequences of the thing that they're very committed to we've been able to show them that um, so we did some really great data working with my colleague who I see on the call Avril from Manmet uh, when we looked at what was the implication of the kinds of assessment we're having on awarding gaps um, and what we found was the kind of assessments we were using in some modules were just year after year resulting in an awarding gap to people who were uh, BTEC students rather than A-level students. And that had implications in terms of the, where, where those students' backgrounds um, and from ethnic minorities were more likely to have BTECs. And then the, that, that implication, that, that idea that there is one assessment that is neutral to student background was something that we were able to challenge with academics um, who, you know, some of them were very horrified by these results. And we could show them that by changing the kind of assessment that they offered to students, they were getting what we think was, you know, fairer results for students uh, that were assessing, as you say, Jude, assessing learning, not where they've come from or their competencies uh, and their cultural backgrounds. Um, and that was really helpful. So I think sometimes we do need to use um, that data dashboard um, and to sort of take that back to people and sort of say, look, this is, this is what's happening. This is what's showing up in your data. And um, the same with we do a lot of work at Kingston about looking at um, pass at first attempt. And that's been really helpful because the data behind that is not just have you passed at first attempt? So are we helping students to pass the assessment? Is it something they are doable? But it shows where we've got very, very high levels of students um, postponing the inevitable because they don't know how to tackle it sometimes. So some of those cases would be student illness, but where you've got lots and lots, it was suggesting to us that the students were finding it really difficult to time manage around that assessment or so on. So I think seeing that whole picture, uh, the ecosystem, as you've said, um, and having the data that explains what happens. So not just looking at one assessment in isolation, but looking at the impact of that and showing students that if, if students don't pass on first attempt, they're less likely to get good honours, they're then less likely to get good jobs, you know, they're less likely to stay with us. All of the implications from those things, putting it into that ecosystem and showing that back to academics is, is very persuasive. But is it also something about, um, you know, the great paradox is for many academics, learning is something that's alien to them. They've forgotten how to learn and particularly in this digital age. So how many, how many academics, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of being slightly facetious, but, but that sense of investing your, your limited time in having some training, having some support to improve the quality of your assessment, and in fact, improve your workload so that you're not 
you're not, not actually stretched in ways that we've, we've all experienced. You know, teaching a, a first year psychology class of 900 students is pretty challenging. Yeah, I was, I was going to, to raise the issue about um, um, staff development, because I think that's a really important part of it is to, we can't assume that all academic staff come in with, with perfect teaching skills, perfect skills for design and assessment. And I think the landscape has changed over the years while I've, while I've been uh, in, in, in university. Um, the, the kind of assessments that I used to set there on, on, at that time are not the assessments that, we, that we're setting now. And they, you know, we've, we've moved the goalposts hugely on that. So um, I, I think a lot can be taught to academics, but they need to devote the time. And often they, they, um, these, these development sessions are optional and the, the, the busy academics who really need to um, have that kind of extra skill are, are, are not the ones to attend the, the sessions. But for the ones that do, I think they get a lot out of it. And I think um, it, it's moving the, the, um, the assessment story forward. I think. Um, and, but it also it affects the way you teach as well. It's pedagogy as well as assessment, isn't it? It's not just about the way we assess. It's a way, it's a way we use the time with the students in the classroom. And if you have 900 students, um, how you how you can find the time to assess those students and uh, where you have lots of different markers, how you triangulate the marking to make sure everyone the marking is fair. It's it's a big it's always a big challenge for large numbers of students. I think we can learn a lot as well from our response to the pandemic. So in in 2020, we all swung into action because we had to. We had no choice. Um, so I saw I, I run weekly or ran weekly. Um, seminars on campus for colleagues to talk through issues around teaching and learning enhancement um, where we would get I don't know 20 30 of people a week that jumped to about 100 a week in that summer of 2020 because everybody knew they needed to be shaking up what they they did they they knew we were heading into lockdown learning they knew they were going to have to learn the tools of how to use zoom how to use teams and so on so there was a motivation there and I think we need to use carrots and sticks We've got to have that motivation that is for them in the excitement of using new approaches to teaching and learning and how that can make teaching much more enjoyable, how it can help students see the value in attending rather than just thinking they're going to catch up through some online resources. Um, but it's also got to come through policy and we need support from leaders within institutions on this. We need support from outside of institutions in terms of those national policies and 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 the nudges that we might get from accreditation bodies for example um, we need to harness all of that um, so that there is that imperative but there's also the attraction in engaging with that development um, and persuading staff that actually this is for the good of everybody you're not just doing it for students you're doing it for yourselves and if you can get that right within your classroom you can draw on your research you can embed you can make sure that your teaching is research inspired you can bring in those live examples of the things that you're doing in that other side of your academic life when you're not face to face with students and create education that's better for everybody. Look, um, just let me make a comment. I've noticed that some people have had to leave. This is being um, recorded. People will be able to access the recording and they'll also be able to access the, uh, the chat stream. So uh, let me, those, those who've had to leave, don't worry. Um, there's a, an interesting point made by Will Blewett. Much of the conversation has revolved around generative AI's application to writing mapping, mapping it to proofreading surfaces, but 
What about those domains where the output and the learning outcomes are analogous? For example, mathematics or computing sciences, where the output from a generative AI platform can supplant the complete learning outcome. I'm going to throw that one at you, Irene. <laughs> yes, because I'm from a computer science background anyway. Um, certainly, it, I think computer science, computer programming um, is very much like reading, writing, arithmetic. You have to learn to do it yourself first before you can start to use the tools. Because these tools, yes, they're very good at generating code. They're very good at solving maths problems as well. We will do that. Um, the code doesn't necessarily work, um, but also the skills that you need to be a computer scientist are not just about writing code. They're understanding, um, you know, the, the problem itself. They're, you know, in terms of code, you need to be able to maintain that code. You need to be able to modify that code. You can't do that unless you have the basic skills to start with. But you have to have the fundamental skills um, uh, to do that. So it's important that students acquire those skills before they start making use of the AI tool. But there is no doubt that when they get, get into the real world, when they get out into industry, they will use these tools to generate um, and therefore they need to, to learn to use it um, and understand what they're doing and understand uh, uh, you know, any flaws in the code that's generated by the tools as well. So they, they need the underlying skills first. Um, and, and so that, that certainly will be the policy that will be advocated in my institution in terms of computer science. Uh, and that math problems are another, another thing as well, but they'll do the working out for you as well. So students will be able to uh, acquire this. And this is one of the reasons it's really important that, that we talk to our colleagues in secondary education and, and give them all the support that they need, because uh, I think the, um, the approach to academic integrity at secondary level um, it is a lot sort of less mature than it is at higher education um, for all the reasons that, you know, they're, they're kind of tied up with the day job, really, and they, they haven't found time to do all the other stuff. But I think it's more important that we work with them and help them uh, at this time as well. I don't to do that. Much of the discussion has been about written text. But there's, there's, there's nothing, I mean, and, and we know the soft, the soft skills that are required, the graduate outcomes, being able to work as part of a team, have effective communication skills um, and, and others. So do you think that the, the moral panic has been around the dominance of written text as opposed to sort of a much more rounded view of learning and, and the whole university experience? And why do you think this is the case? I'm going to throw this one at, at, at you, Alison. Yeah, I think I think this is an indication of how early we are in discussing these things, isn't it? Um, I think we're all doing some very quick learning around what these tools actually are, um, how they all work. I'm, I'm not sure we all need to know how they all work in the background, but I think the implications for the whole education ecosystem is, is really profound. Um, but on, at the same time, as we've touched on this conversation throughout, None of this is really new. It's just the next iteration. It's the next toy that's come along. Um, AI isn't new. We've all been using AI for many years, most of us without even realizing it. You know, when we when we ask Siri or Alexa to tell us something, that's AI. It's generating an output. So chat GPT isn't new in that respect. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think this is something that we are constantly. I mean, this is what we do in education, isn't it? We're, we're constantly flexing. We're constantly adapting. That's part of what makes 
university education is so exciting and and that's part of our um, responsibility as educators when students come to us regardless of the subject that they're studying to be constantly adapting to the new environments that we're finding ourselves in um, none of us expected the pandemic to come along none of us expected um, the whole of the university system um, to be able to adapt so quickly to using teams and zoom and other types of, of tools so for me it's, it's about adaptability um, it's about being open to conversation it's about constantly thinking how can we get better at everything that we do but at the same time we're exhausted i think that we, we need to acknowledge that you know the pandemic the last two or three years for everybody we've got to be careful in terms of you know we talked a lot about the need for us all to upskill and we've got to support our colleagues we've got to adapt to all of this but it is time consuming it isn't just about student cohorts being huge um it, it is also about that general environment that we're in and we need the support of each other to be able to to do that and working alongside students so you're talking about well-being staff well-being and student well-being what piece of advice would you give to your provost or your vice chancellor about supporting staff and student well-being Alison? <laughs> uh, I have to be quite careful with this one, don't I? Um, I think you're imagined at You've got a my, new vice chancellor too. I think we are capable of doing everything we need to do. We just need the time and the resource to be able to do it well. Um, and I think we, we do face challenges in, in higher education. Um, you know, the way it's funded, this is a, you know, a government decision about the way that, that universities are funded which is having huge implications for our capability to adapt and, and be flexible um, because we are working within limited resource um, and time. So I think my challenge to a provost or a VC would be please resource us properly, please resource education properly. We know how to make it brilliant. We know how to make it um, as good as it, it needs to be. We know how to adapt to these things, but we need the resources and the time and space to be able to do that. Being a provost, Helen, yes. and I was a provost <laughs> myself, so I've, I've had these uh, these conversations. What would you expect your staff to do? You well, know, I mean, what, what are, would you expect them to come? They are doing what I expect them to do. They're behaving, you know, they're bringing forward brilliant ideas, uh, creative ideas. They are critical thinkers and they are curious people. And despite what some of the press would have, they live in the real world. Uh, they have not been in ivory tower for 20 years so they're doing exactly what they should be doing coming forward with some stuff i think that the point about resources it's well made but as as alison has said we are facing a fixed unit of resource that has lost its real value through inflation it's been the same for many years now and everybody wants resource and again uh, am i again stephen my former colleagues talked about we've got a lot of agendas here the awarding gap um, student well-being, student support, careers and employability. Before I get on to, you know, my researchers also want my support. My knowledge exchange people want more support. Uh, and there's a limit. To, that it's, a, it's a fixed amount of resource that we have. Um, so we do have to get creative. And I think that's sometimes about giving people permission. So I've often found in conversations with academics, they've said, but, you know, I'm not allowed to change anything. And I need to look at those structures when see whether that's true or not. Uh, and sometimes it is, and I need to make them more flexible. Sometimes it isn't. It's the mythology that grows up in higher education about what you can and can't do. So I think that, you know, there's that sense of I'm, we need to make sure our systems empower academics, support academics. But academics sometimes do need to sort of understand that, um, that's what I've said about, if you need um, to spend more time doing this, you need, we need, there are things you need to stop doing. Um, and you are over, uh, some of them are over assessing. 
Uh, and it's like one really, really well thought through critical piece of assessment is better than what you're doing at the moment. And we do have to make those tough choices because the resource is finite. Um, so, um, but I, as I said, Judith, they are doing exactly what I expect to. They have uh, embraced uh, the new challenge of ChatGPT and have, have um, talked about how we, how, we, how we address this um, as a learning community as a whole and how we use this to get over some of the silos that aren't helping staff or students at the moment. And Irene, you're going to have a very quick last word. It'll have to be quick, won't it? I, I, I think um, constant change is the problem that, that my colleagues are facing, really. Um, and it would be nice just to have a, a period of time when we're not changing. But I can't see it happening anytime soon. Thank you to the three of you for what has been a really wonderful discussion. And to all of the, the people who were uh, engaging in the chat, um, it was, uh, it was a great, great hour that I spent. I hope it was a great hour for the three of you. And um, I wish you a wonderful day. And uh, I look forward to spring coming in the, your, your part of the world. <laughs> and uh, thank you again. Thank Bye. you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for asking. Thanks. Thank Good question.